The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning, everyone. In thinking about the talk I wanted to give uh, this morning, uh, I couldn't help but to uh, consider that, um, I'll say it this way, that there's something about sitting in the Dharma seat, giving a talk, where it is it feels connected to the not just individual practice, but also to our world circumstances. And that, uh, that there's sometimes an expectation that when people come to a Buddhist practice, that it somehow should address some of the great existential issues not only of our individual life, but also of our uh, human society. And, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to live a human life in the midst of all of, all, all of, the, all of the above? And um, so I say all this because, of, at least in my heart, it's, uh, I feel very, very full or very broken, maybe brokenhearted, with um, what happened in London yesterday and uh, the other things that's happened in England in the last few weeks and what happened in Portland. Uh, two, two people were killed uh, by a man who professes hate as a right. And uh, also uh, suicide bombings in Kabul in Afghanistan last week and Coptic Christians on a bus killed in Egypt. So all these things kind of are here. So, uh, you, know, f- you know, in giving teachings, if I make no reference to it whatsoever, it can seem like, you know, what we're doing here has no relevance to the world that most people live or most of our concerns. So I wanted to just, you know, say that it's in my heart, maybe in your heart, and I hope that the, what I say today is, will, at least indirectly, uh, you know, uh, be related to this wider world. And certainly my motivation to teach and to be a Buddhist teacher has to do to, very much has to do with to make a better world, to address the issues of violence and injustice in our society. And it might not always seem that's the case because, you know, I might give instructions and f- sit down and close your eyes and watch your breathing. And then what's that, what does that have to do with anything about what's going on in the world? It could seem like a big disconnect. But I hope there isn't. So... Um, what I want to talk about today is um, uh, two aspects of Buddhist practice. Buddhist practice can be divided and categorized in many, many different ways, and so this is just one way of doing it today that I found particularly significant. And uh, on the one side, we can talk about doing Buddhist practice. We can practice. And uh, it's not uncommon in our scene to someone to say, uh, what do you practice? And they'll say, well, I practice you know, X, Y, and Z. I practice mindfulness of breathing, or I practice mindfulness. I practice loving kindness. You know, you know, so they were they kind of this um, you know, transitive verb, you know, I practice, I, something I'm doing. That's like half, half of it. The other half uh, is being practiced. Maybe that's poor English to talk that way, but that doesn't seem to stop me. <laughs> the, um, 
being practiced. We're also being practiced. We do the practice, and partly what we're doing when we is in doing the practice, we're creating the conditions for us to be practiced, us to be to something that's not our doing to affect us, to change us. And um, it reminds me of the little idea that if you want to have real dialogue with someone, uh, you should go into the dialogue um, being willing to be changed by it. If you're not willing to be changed by it, then maybe you're, you're not really a, you know, a good partner for a real dialogue between people. So to go into Buddhist practice being willing to be changed as opposed to being the changer. Of course, I want to, be, I, I want to change. I'm willing to be changed and I'm going to huff and puff and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to, I'm, it's up to me. I have to do it. And there are a number of people who, for whom uh, they overemphasize being the practitioner and those who overemphasize um, being passive and letting something that's not them be responsible. Just trust that something is going to unfold. And, and uh, you can, either side can be overdone, but there's a middle way. There's a way in which we kind of have to try to find a way to balance both. We have an important role to play in Buddhist practice, and part of that role is to get out of the way. So something else can happen, take over, something else can move through us and change us. So one, exa- one uh, kind of analogy for this would be that if I was standing in um, outdoors on a cold day in the shade and I was starting to get chilled, 10 feet away, there's no shade, the sun is shining down quite strongly, and you know that if I go over those 10 feet over there, that uh, I can stand in the sun, and the sun will warm me a little bit, be warmer than being in the shade. So, um, um, so it's my job to get over those 10 feet. I have to kind of make that little walk over there. Once I'm there, it's my job to stay there. You know, if I can't just go over there for two seconds and come back, you know, the sun doesn't work that fast. I have to stay over there and allow myself to get warm, allow myself to allow the sun to penetrate through my clothes and into my skin until I get warm. I have to be a receptive to something which is not my doing, but I put myself in the circumstance that allowed the sun to affect me. So if you want to get warm and you're standing in the shade, there's two sides to what you have to do. You have to practice moving into the sun. And then you have to allow the sun to practice on you. And the sun then will warm you up. So, uh, so Buddhist practice has these two sides and it's very easy to emphasize the side of doing. And even as a teacher and myself and listening to other teachers, uh, uh, you know, people want to give instructions and, and it's kind of normal. People are like, what, do I, what am I supposed to do? Well, do X, Y, and Z. And so it sounds like it's, you know, the emphasis sometimes can be on the doing side. And it's maybe, maybe at least I find, a little bit difficult to know exactly how to talk about the receptive side, the side of not doing, the side of allowing, allowing something to happen. Because, you know, it's sometimes easier to say what to do than what to not do. Uh, you know, in terms of something positive that's supposed to happen. 
Um, and uh, so uh, down through the years that I've been doing a Buddhist practice, um, I feel that uh, I've been changed dramatically by this practice, but I feel like I can't take responsibility for the change. Uh, in, the, in the same way as I can't take responsibility for the sun warming me, I can take responsibility of standing in the sun. But I can't, you know, take responsibility except not only standing there, but then staying there. The idea of staying there is very important in practice. And so we have a responsibility, but it's balanced with needing, with receptivity. And then a, a capacity to be receptive, capacity to take something in. And if we're too much the actor, the agent for the practice, uh, then there's not a room to be receptive very much. So there's many ways of being the agent, the actor or the, you know, the, the doer. Some of them, the obvious ones, you know, like, um, you know, you think you're supposed to, instructions are to stay and be present for the breathing. So the practice to do, what I do is I keep bringing myself to the breath and stay there. That's kind of the obvious way. But uh, there are kind of uh, less obvious ways, sometimes which are very important, very debilitating sometimes as well. And that is, um, there could be a strong sense of, um, of a really strong sense that I am the doer, or I'm the one who's the failure. I'm doing this and I'm failing. Or there could be a strong sense of uh, duty and obligation, the dutiful one. I'm doing this because it's a duty, I'm obligated. Or a strong sense of shame. You know, I'm so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm so unworthy, there's lots of shame here. Uh, I'm somehow bad and wrong. And so I come in to do this practice. There's an activity, a doer, a strong sense of self, or an attribution of a strong sense of self. Being a, being the, feeling a lot of shame uh, is certainly very easy to do, and some people struggle under this. But it, it fits under the category of assuming that you are an, like an entity, a being, that then, then uh, closes down the capacity to be receptive to something else when it's really strong. So sometimes there's conceit, sometimes there's very strong uh, shyness, shame, sense of all kinds of things that come along there in the background or in the, you know, that really have a big influence on this, that get in the way of being receptive. So in Buddhism, sometimes this is talked about the strong sense of self, strong sense of self-identity, how we hold ourselves and think of ourselves. And that a big part of Buddhist practice is to soften that enough so that we can start being receptive to something that's not just our doing. So, um, so I'll give you some examples of being receptive. Uh, I think it's maybe somewhat common enough experience for some people, enough people, to say that uh, if people live a stressful life and they're kind of spinning along and the body's tense, their mind is act- agitated, and if you sit down to meditate, close your eyes and be still for a little while, um, you know, you can probably, even if you don't even, if you, even if you don't intend to relax, the body can start relaxing a little bit. The shoulders give away a little bit, the belly softens a little bit. There's kind of a settling that happens a little bit. And maybe the mind stops being so spinning so much and being so agitated. 
there's no intention to relax maybe. Or maybe there is a wish, an intention to relax, but we're not like, you know, gearing up to relax. You know, let, let's do this. <laughs> you, know, we, you know, I have five minutes to relax and let's like, you know, be efficient. Get on to more important things to do than relaxing. So we want to get over this as quickly as we possibly can. <laughs> Sp- speed relaxing. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it kind of doesn't work that way. Uh, you know, you can do some things to help you relax. You can do some conscious relaxing of the muscles and doing all that. But some of the, that's kind of often the surface stuff. And when you sit and give yourself enough time to just sit and relax, just sit and allow the relaxation to happen, sometimes it can be deeper than the surface, deeper than even, even what you know how to address and to touch. So that, this idea of relaxing deeply by just sitting and minding your own business, not doing anything, is one example of how we're being practiced. We're allowing something to, take, to have an effect on us. And it's not so mysterious that the body wants to relax as we sit there. Um, as we sit and practice, then uh, we tend to become, have greater self-understanding, self-awareness. We're aware of what goes on in here. And sometimes there's, we start to shift as we see more clearly what's there. And we're not doing the shifting, it's just obvious. I don't want to do this anymore. I didn't know that I was always uh, being so critical all the time in my mind. And as we see it more clearly, the tendency to be invested or to feed the criticalness begins to relax and it softens down. Or perhaps people sit and they meditate and start being present and being present. And after a while, we start realizing that uh, there's a lot of sadness. And perhaps it's sadness that's been left over for decades. It's been there in the background, kind of something gnawing at one. And and so just that sadness comes into view and sometimes nothing needs to happen except continue to just be present for it, make space for it, and then it begins to unfold, it begins to evolve, it begins to dissolve, it begins to process itself in a way that it can't if it's in the dark. And so, because if it's in the dark, it's kind of like, like uh, you know, the, the, I guess, Jack and the Jack and the Beans, and a Jack and the, Jack, what's it called, Jack Box, what's it called? Jack in the box, yeah, poor Jack. That's, uh, you know, in the box. And, uh, you know, he's in the dark and there's very little space and nothing can happen until someone pops the lid open and then he, he you know, he come finally is free. So there's all kinds of things within us that can start being set free if it comes out into the open. And there can be layers and layers of, uh, of unresolved emotions, feelings, trauma, and things that many of us carry and, um, and we don't necessarily have to be the doer of the healing, but we have to be the one who shows up for it. I mean, we have to stay standing in the sun. We have to stay standing sometimes in the midst of feeling, allowing, experiencing uh, some of the difficult feelings and emotions we have in our life. The common thing for some people to do is when they run into emotional pain is to want to fix it. Tell me what to do. And sometimes there's not much. To, sometimes the wisest thing to do is to do nothing, except stand in the sun, meaning standing in the sun of awareness. Just be aware with it, stay with it, and be very careful that we, you don't get too involved in the I, all the all the ideas of me, myself, and I, in relationship to the difficult emotion. You might feel like I have to fix it. You might feel like. 
I'm a bad person because I have it. More shame can come up. I shouldn't be this way. Uh, you know, I'm in a Buddhist group, and all these people here are just floating on loving kindness and joy. And I'm the only one here who's angry. And, uh, you know, therefore, I'm just, you know, I'm, you know, you know, you know, this is, you know, not good. I'm not a good person. I better try harder. And, and so all these things, all that kind of messes up the waters. It kind of makes it more complicated. And it's kind of, it's, it's leaving the receptive world. And how do we, in certain things, we want to step back into that receptive world and allow it to be there in awareness. And receptive means to, to allow something to move through us and happen that is not our doing. And remarkably, there's so many things that go on in our psychological and our mind and hearts that can move towards health and healing and freedom that we don't have to orchestrate. And the analogy I, li- I use a lot is uh, that of if you, if you can cut your finger, maybe you know, you're chopping vegetables or something and you cut your finger, it's a simple cut. Uh, you clean it and put a Band-Aid on it. You protect it. That's your job. But you're not responsible for the healing except for keeping it clean. Uh, the body does the healing. And you have to kind of, in a sense, be receptive and allow the body the time to do this very, probably very complicated physiological thing of healing that cut. And I suspect that none of us have the conscious intelligence to orchestrate the healing of a little cut. If we had to muster together all the hormones and bloods and the antibodies and everything that has to come into play to make the healing happen, it's probably a pretty complicated event. But the body knows how to do it. Your conscious mind doesn't. It, uh, it seems that the same thing for our psychological and emotional life. The inner life knows how to move towards health, to healing, much more than we tend to give it credit for. And, um, and, but we have a responsibility to go from the shade to the sun and then stay in the sun. So what does that mean in terms of this practice here? It might mean... Uh, going from your, putting down your computer, going from your couch, and going to your meditation cushion. (laughs) You know, it's only, you know, 10 feet, maybe. (laughs) But that's, you know, but that's a big responsibility. Some people don't seem to quite able to do, right? So, but, you know, that's your job. And then you sit there, and then you try to uh, be present for your experience, and that's kind of like the real key to all this, to be present. And, and that's one of the, why we emphasize being in the present moment, cultivating mindfulness, so we can really be here for our experience. Because if you do those 10 feet to your meditation cushion, and then you spend the whole time planning what's for dinner, and you don't even, you're so involved in dinner plans, you don't even know you're planning dinner. You know, you're absorbed in it. You might, your body might relax a little bit because you're sitting there in a nice way, but you're not really availing yourself of the deeper capacity of the heart and mind to unfold and to work. And so, um, and so, but if you're present in a clear way, really there for the experience, that allows something to happen. So initially, when some people learn meditation or sit down, or after a busy day or a lot of things going on, challenging things, it might be, you sit down and we discover that it's very hard to be present the mind keeps spinning out into the past and the future, into its concerns. And our job 
is to, uh, we have a responsibility then. Then that's where we practice. We practice letting go of those thoughts and beginning again with the breathing. Letting go of those thoughts and waking up to what's happening now. Letting go, waking up to what's happening now. Returning to now, returning to now. Maybe it's trying to stay with the breathing as a way of settling down and relaxing some more. And there are times when our responsibility to do that, if you, if you want to do this practice this way, it can be huge. Uh, sometimes it just takes a lot of work. And sometimes I think of meditation as manual labor. In certain circumstances, if you're just really spinning out, really upset about something, really angry, really concerned about something, it can be heroic to try to not be caught in that, in the grip of all those concerns, and just keep coming back, waking up. Okay, here I am. Here I am. Uh, boy, am I angry. Yes, I'm here in the anger. As opposed to so involved in the anger that we're not even aware that we're angry. We're just like spinning in it. And uh, so I'll give um, one example, one, one, one wonderful teaching that there's a teacher named Shinzen Young, wonderful teacher who I heard many, many years ago give a talk. And uh, he said, there are times when a successful session of meditation, the success is defined that you didn't leave your cushion. You didn't get off your cushion. He said, sometimes meditating is like being in the rodeo. You know, riding, riding a horse in the rodeo. There can be so many emotional, physical, mental energies spinning around, so active, so much restlessness, that, um, that uh, it's very hard to stay still, stay, stay on your cushion. And rather than thinking that you were a meditation failure because your mind was spinning out so much, he wanted to give everyone credit for the fact that they stayed on their cushion, stayed in the saddle. Even though, you know, the experience was quite, you know, tumultuous. And I believe that's the case. Sometimes that's manual labor to keep showing up to be there. Other times we sit down and it's just easy. Who knows why? But we sit down and sometimes people have the experience that just as soon as they sit down, they enter into almost a different zone and they're really present. As we're able to stay more and more present in meditation, and it becomes easier and easier, then the, the, the side of practice, being the practitioner, begins to decrease. And the stronger and stronger the capacity of present is, the less we should be the practitioner. So at some point when, this, when the concentration, the subtleness is strong enough, then it's actually easier to be present to not be present. It's like uphill to not be present, to get involved in thoughts and think about something. And we're just right there. And then the job is not to do the practice anymore, just to stay out of the way. Don't get in the way of it. Allow it to be there. Allow yourself to stay present. And allow yourself, and then it becomes more, more valuable to be receptive, to be allowing, to stop being the doer, to stop being the one who measures it against yourself, against what's happening, and against all kinds of standards and what's supposed to happening. And more, it becomes more and more I don't like the word passive, but more and more receptive, more and more allowing, and less and less doing. And some people, that, that, at that juncture, will talk about the practice being more about being uh, than doing. But there's a spectrum, there's a range, and we have to kind of recognize where we are in that range to know what is our responsibility, how much should we be involved in doing things, 
and how much should we get out of the way. Someone sitting on the couch watching, you know, the computer, a TV on the computer, and maybe they're watching some wonderful, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, maybe in 50 years there'll be Buddhist commercials and so, you know, or something, you know, there'll be a commercial, a mindfulness commercial will come along and say, and someone will say, you know, uh, just relax and open up and accept and be present for whatever, whatever's happening, just accept the moment. Great. You're, you're, you're on your couch watching, you know, TV and, great. <laughs> this, just, this justifies me doing what I'm doing and, or maybe the commercial came in between shopping on Amazon. And so, oh, this is great. I'll just accept my shopping and my tendency. It's all great. Um, you know, but, you know, that doesn't work that way. We have to get up out of the couch and off the TV and, and go make those ten, you know, move, go to the place where we can meditate or come to a meditation center or go and retreat or do something. And then... Uh, this receptive side is, for many people, is not good news. Because, from one perspective, it's very inefficient. We would like our spiritual practice, some of us, not me, I know better now. But there are people who would like it to be fast. Fast spirituality. To get it over with because there's really important things to be done in the world. There's TV programs to watch, th- things to do, you know. Um, and, you know, who wants to do a spiritual practice that takes years? <laughs> you know, it, requi- it requires you to sit, meditate 45 minutes every day. I mean, gee, I mean, what are, you're missing out on a lot of life if you're sitting there having to meditate. And so, uh, so there's, you know, this bit fast. There's a, it was a little spoof, uh, kind of a satire of, Vipassana practice done some years ago and they filmed it at Spirit Rock Meditation Center north of here and um, this was a very kind of I don't know conceited man is there meditating on retreat and, and um, he's out in the courtyard just outside the meditation hall on his cell phone and he's talking to someone on the phone and he says um, talks about yeah there was a meditation ses- session just now and um, everyone else is still in there, but uh, I, you know, I nailed it in ten. <laughs> I nailed it in ten minutes. <laughs> so that would be nice, right? Then you, then you don't have to kind of do all this, you know, lengthy work in time. But fortunately, I think many spiritual practices, including Buddhism, takes a lot of time. It's not just you in charge and getting over it as quickly as you can, but the, the depth of your psyche, the depth of your inner life, needs time to unfold. This wisdom and this capacity for healing and, and moving towards health and moving towards wisdom and to freedom is a process that there's a tremendous amount of support for you to do that from within. It's, a, it's remarkable what's available inside, but it needs time. We need time to kind of make the space for it to begin to unfold and evolve. It takes a lot of courage because at times we have to kind of confront some of the darkest aspects of ourselves, most difficult aspects of ourselves, things that people have avoided for a long time. 
And then we're told to just, and sometimes we're just told, people encounter these difficult things, they go to a teacher and tell me what to do so I can get over it quickly. And these poor teachers, all they have to say is, it's okay, <laughs> just stay present, just be with it. It's okay, just allow, allow it, allow it. And, you know, and so then people sometimes don't believe us that that's enough, you know, you're supposed to do something and get over it. And, uh, but sometimes that's the wisest thing to do, is just give yourself lots of time so that something deeper can begin to unfold and move through us. Deeper understanding, deeper um, space for healing to happen, for the process to unfold and to bubble and to move through. We're very fortunate that uh, our whole psychophysical being is not a thing, but a process. And because it's a process, it's always processing. And you have some role whether that process moves towards ill health or moves towards health, moves towards freedom or moves to being caught. So we have a responsibility, but the big part of the responsibility is getting us to a place where we can stop being responsible in a certain way. So um, because of this approach, uh, the core teachings that the Buddha offered about the path to liberation uh, was made up of, a, he talked about a number of different practices you can do, uh, that the practices of liberation. But if you analyze those practices, they uh, involve two categories of practices to do. One category is uh, instructions on all the things you shouldn't do. And sometimes that involves restraint, restraining yourselves from doing it. Sometimes the instructions are to let go of those things and don't do them. Um, so there's just all about what you shouldn't do. And then the second category of practices is to be aware of what's happening. And it can sound, some people hear that, you know, half of those practices have to do with just what you don't do can seem restrictive. Here are these Buddhists, they're party poopers. You know, it's all about what you're not, not supposed to do. But the wisdom of not doing what you're not to do is to make space for awareness of the present so something else can unfold. So the sense of well-being and health can begin bubbling up. And in fact, the purpose that the Buddha explains for the practices of not, of doing, not doing something is that there's some kind of happiness that can be born, sense of joy or well-being it comes from not doing those things. So for example, one of the things that he said, the first thing he said don't to do, don't do, is uh, don't go around killing people. Don't go stealing. Don't engage in sexual misconduct, hurt people through your sexuality. Don't lie. You know, if, you know, if that's really a challenging thing to do for you, then I think there's, that's the area to address and to look at that. But he said, if you do those things, if you avoid doing those things, that's a source for happiness. You can be, you can, it's called the happiness of being blameless. He also talked about being very careful what you do with sensual pleasures. There's all kinds of comforts and sensual pleasures in this world of ours, uh, but be very careful you don't get attached to them. So avoid attachment to sensual pleasures. That can be a big challenge, but it's mostly what we don't do 
So it's a kind of a letting go practice. It's coming back to a kind of simplicity of being. Don't do the things that get you spinning out and get you active and involved. So there's a series of things like that. And the other thing is be more aware. Let go and be aware is the simplest descriptions of the liberation practices of the Buddha. In the process of doing that, he expects you that you'll feel happier and happier. It's not a matter of uh, diminishing you and, and being less because we let go. It's actually being enhanced by that letting go. And then as that process unfolds, it makes room for a beautiful states of mind to arise, beautiful states of freedom to arise, of ease, joy, happiness, equanimity to arise. And uh, it, there starts to be space for this working of the heart. So given how I started this talk by referring to the tragedies of our, uh, of our world that's going on right now, I think maybe it's worth mentioning that uh, one of the big surprises for me as I engaged in the first years of Buddhist practice was uh, I, I did a lot, of, a lot of meditation. I would sit and uh, I didn't know very much about meditation. I didn't know what was supposed to happen very much. So I, had no, I didn't even know that maybe you weren't supposed to think so much. But all I knew was I was supposed to be present for what is and have a kind of unconditional acceptance of what is if I could be present for it. So I didn't have any, I didn't have this idea I had to get rid of a lot of things. Like I didn't have to stop my thinking or, or you know, not feel or not, not hurt. I mean, I, I did a lot of Zen practice, so a lot of what I had unconditional acceptance for was knee pain. <laughs> and, um, and so, but that was a powerful practice to do. So I just, and, and when I, when I eventually went to the Zen monasteries, I did a lot of time just sitting there practicing this unconditional acceptance, which in a sense was showing up for, to be receptive to what was there. And not only was it my uh, physical pain, but also I had a lot of emotional pain. I wasn't trying to fix it. I wasn't trying to react to it. I wasn't trying to define myself by it. I had a kind of a simplistic, maybe, way of just, I just be there for it. Just be, just be. A number of things happened in that process. But the one that I feel is the most important for me, those early years of practice, was that I, I was compassioned in the process. I didn't get enlightened from it, but I became compassioned. And what would you rather do, become enlightened or compassionate? Don't answer the question. <laughs> but um, but uh, I became more, I've, without knowing it, cause it was, I realized retrospectively, it slowly grew in me and grew in me a greater sense of compassion. And this became one of the treasures of my life, this capacity, of this feeling, this capacity for compassion, this sense of compassion. And uh, it became kind of the organizing principle of my life, this this idea of this welling up inside. I couldn't have planned it. I couldn't have made it happen. This is one of those things that I had to allow for. And it was easier to allow for because I didn't even know I was supposed to allow for it. I just had to allow something. I just had to be there. And it moved in that direction. But it required standing in the sun. It required being present, being present, being present. And some things take a long time to warm us up but that you need a lot of time. 
So there's something that luckily, I think luckily, inefficient about Buddhist practice. So you have to factor that in if you want to really do it well. What I'm, to say it another way, rather than inefficient, it means <clears throat> you have to give it time. You have to do it. Buddhist practice doesn't work whatsoever if you don't do it. <clears throat> so you have to kind of give yourself time to allow it to grow and develop and do. In relationship then to these tragedies in our world around us, um, if we learn the, the capacity to be receptive, if we learn to let go of the barriers to feel and sense other people and what's going on in the world, if we're not so caught up in conceit or self-preoccupation in all the different ways that could be, if we're not caught up in our desires and wanting you know, all the local things we can want, or we're not caught up in our fear, which creates a barrier to really be present for the world, or caught up in our hate, which is a barrier to how to be present. If we can let go of that and have discovered this kind of a capacity to be receptive, and then to sit and be receptive to uh, what's going on in the world, to be a witness to it, and allow ourselves to be affected by it. And if we have cultivated, I, I believe, if we've cultivated a deep sense of freedom, presence, awareness, then we'll have compassion for this world. We'll, our hearts will break. But not, it won't break with distress. It won't break with anxiety and dismay. It's a kind of a clean break, a clean sense of pain or hurt when we see what's in the world. In a kind of way, it's a kind of a pain that feels right. If these things happening, it's appropriate to feel this way. It's not a mistake. It's nothing in a sense to get alarmed about it in a certain way. You know, it's, we don't have to get kind of start spinning out and get agitated or get angry even. But we can allow ourselves to, it, it's a gift to the world to allow ourselves to feel what's going on. And that, in doing that, allow our compassion to come forward. And then my hope is that then that we allow our compassion to move us to do something, to be different. If we want to be good citizens for this world and be present for it, the hope is that we, just like in a good in dialogue, we, want, we enter the dialogue to be changed by it, we enter the world to be changed by it. We don't want to just feel our, our, our status quo life is threatened and I don't want to be, you know, keep, I want to keep everything at bay and keep what I have, but to allow ourselves to be changed. And how do we allow ourselves to be changed? How do we allow ourselves to be changed so we have just the right balance between being the, doing, being the one who's responsible and being the one who's receptive to that change? And sometimes what we need to do is to not, be, not to rush to action but rather a rush to listen more deeply, be present more, stand in the sun for a while until it becomes clearer and clearer what we should do, how we should respond, and how to negotiate that between you know, when to practice, when to act, when to be receptive, when to be more present and continue to be a witness of what goes on, 
that's a, no one can say, tell us, you know, where, where we fit on that line and where it, where it is. But it's certainly my hope <clears throat> that this Buddhist practice, uh, as it deepens and we understand some of the inner dynamics of what goes on, not only makes us have a greater capacity to be witnesses and, and you know, to share and experience what's going on in the world in a more effective and meaningful way, but we want to do that. We want to be a witness. We want to be part of the human family. We want to be responsive and part of it. And how to do that is uh, each individual person is going to find their own way, hopefully. I certainly hope that this practice doesn't just make us, you know, more and more isolated and living our own life, but rather the opposite, and that we change as a result. So to practice and allow yourself to be practiced. May all the goodness that's waiting for you within, may it have a chance to practice you. Thank you.